Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza. This is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And before we get started, I want to share a few words about a new advertiser we have here at Basketball History 101 and the Sports History Network. If you're listening to this podcast, then you are probably a sports history fan. And if you're into sports history, then you need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the U.S., Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and more dating back to 1798 all the way up to yesterday. I recently checked it out and it has got everything. If you want to do research on a moment in history, whether it's sports, politics, business, whatever, they will have what you need. Get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you will also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com newspapers. So now let's get on with today's story. Today, we're going to talk about the development of the blocked shot. How many times have you seen a highlight of Dikembe Mutombo blocking a shot and then wagging his finger at the shooter to say, no, no, no? Or the one of Manute Bowl blocking four shots on the same possession? Or how about the one where Lowry Markkinen of the Bulls blocked Steph Curry's shot literally back into his face? Or one of LeBron's famous chase-down blocks, especially the one against Andre Iguodala to save the 2016 NBA championship? Blocked shots make for some of the best highlights in the NBA. But to understand where the block shot came from and how it developed, I have to take you all the way back to the beginning of the game itself. The second of James Naismith's original 13 rules for basketball says, quote, the ball may be batted in any direction with one or both hands, unquote. This means that no matter where the ball was, whether it was going up, down, or sideways, you could always stick your hand in and knock it away to benefit your team. Many of the very early players of basketball were of average height, so blocking a shot wasn't what we think of today. There were no Manute Bowls or Dikembe Mutombos back then. It was also considered unwise to try to jump to block someone's shot. You could put your hand up in the shooter's face if you could, but that was the extent of effort anyone would expect from a defensive player. At that point, you simply got ready for the rebound and hoped that the shooter misses the shot. Of course, it didn't take long for many to figure out that extreme height was an advantage in the game of basketball. Back in those early days, they would have a tip-off after every made basket. So it made sense to have the tallest guy you could find join your team so that he could take the tip off. 
These guys were sometimes known as tip-off specialists. And even if that player had no other skill, winning the tip could mean keeping the ball for multiple possessions in a row. Most of these really tall players from the early 1900s were not very athletic, and they had trouble helping their team except for the aforementioned tip-off. But it didn't take long to discover that having a really tall player could also help defend the basket. At the time, there were no rules against goaltending. And the main reason there was no rule against goaltending is because there was virtually no one tall enough or no one who could jump high enough to actually commit goaltending. So many of these early teams took advantage of the lack of a goaltending rule. That means that the very tallest players could sag back near the rim and just wait for an opposing shot to make its way toward the basket. Then you would jump up and slap the ball away just before it hits the rim. There was nothing the offense could do about it. Their only recourse was to try to draw the big man away from the rim, but that rarely worked. There was no good basketball reason that your big guy would want to wander far from the basket when he was on defense. And that's why you had scores back then like 18 to 15. I mean, imagine that kind of thing happening today. How many points would Steph Curry score if Taco Fall could just wait at the rim and knock his shot away just before it reaches the basket? For as great a shooter as Curry is, he would virtually not score at all if goaltending were still legal. Guys like Taco Fall and Boban Marjanovic would be Defensive Player of the Year candidates back then. But of course, goaltending was still perfectly legal back in the old days, and that gave certain teams a huge advantage. In the early 1940s, there were two players that took this defensive tactic to an extreme and caused a change in the rules. First, you had Bob Curlin from Oklahoma A&M University. He was 7 feet tall or 213 centimeters, and he was athletic, which was a rarity in those days. He helped win two national championships for Oklahoma A&M University, and he played in two Olympics in 1948 and 1952, but never played professional basketball. After he graduated from college, he got a regular job and kept playing amateur basketball in the AAU circuit. And that's because his regular job as a salesman paid him more money than the NBA was offering. But that salary thing is a whole different story. The other player that took advantage of allowing goaltending was George Mikan from DePaul University. He was 6 foot 10 or 208 centimeters. But unlike Curlin, Mikan was not quite as athletic. But Mikan would play professional basketball and become the NBA's first true superstar. And while both players were in college, they were dominant on defense because they could basically jump up near their own basket and knock the shot away at the last second. If they could just catch the ball outright, they would do that and start the fast break going the other way. It was nearly impossible to score against either of these teams because of their big men. There was one particular game during Mikan's second year at DePaul University where they won 53-44 over national powerhouse University of Kentucky, coached by Adolph Rupp. That team had a very powerful outside attack with two sharpshooting guards. DePaul coach Ray Meyer planted Mikan right in front of the basket on defense. His job was to knock away any shot or just catch any Kentucky shot that got near the basket. And Rupp was furious, but there were no rules being broken. All of this was perfectly legal. 
and Rupp became one of the leading forces to get the rule changed so that players could not disrupt a shot once it was on its downward trajectory. So because of their dominance, it was decided at the college level to change the rule to the current goaltending rule. A player cannot touch the ball while it is on its downward arc toward the rim. That completely opened things up and made this type of player less effective on the defensive end. But for the overall development of the game, this was a good decision. People like it when scores go up. Teams sell more tickets when scores go up. With goaltending now illegal, the modern block shot started to develop. Now, a player could only bat the ball while it was still on its upward trajectory. But like most things in basketball, it developed slowly. It used to be considered proper defensive technique to keep your feet on the floor. As a defensive player, you were never supposed to leave your feet to play defense. That means a player was not supposed to jump in order to block a shot. You just had to get as close as you could to the shooter and do your best to disrupt the shot without jumping. Even after the jump shot became popular, it was still expected the defender not jump with the shooter. Once the shooter was in the air for the jump shot, you simply had to get ready for the rebound and hope that the shooter missed. And back then, that was not bad because you had a better chance of just letting your man shoot, since prior to the 1950s, even good shooters only shot the ball at around 35%, which is way below today's standard for professionals. Today, it would seem unthinkable to not at least try to jump and block a shot. But that's the way things were back then. Coaches instructed their defenders to never jump on defense. There is a story about Bill Russell when he was in college at the University of San Francisco. He was considered the first master of the block shot. He would terrorize his opponents with it. He often had his man scared to even shoot for fear of having his shot blocked by Russell. His coach, Phil Wolpert, was a traditionalist and didn't like that Russell would jump to block a shot. He would even bench Russell sometimes to really let him know that he was never to leave his feet on defense. He was an old school coach and he had trouble wrapping his mind around what was then a new school technique. Furthermore, Wolpert didn't really understand exactly what Russell was doing when he blocked a shot. It wasn't that Russell was jumping early and then getting lucky. He wasn't going for the pump fake. Russell would wait until the shooter was actually jumping and then he would jump, and more often than not, he would block the shot. If you ever have a chance to watch some old video of Bill Russell, you will see what I'm talking about. He was a very quick jumper. In other words, he had the physical ability to wait until the shooter jumped, and then he would quickly jump and meet the ball at the apex for the block. Most coaches, including Wolpert, were afraid of that pump fake. They did not want to see their player go for the pump fake only to watch the shooter make an easy shot. And for many players, that would be true. But not for Bill Russell. He rarely jumped early. Unfortunately for the blocked shot, it was not an official statistic in the NBA until the beginning of the 1973-74 season. Some teams tracked blocked shots prior to that as an unofficial statistic just for their own records but there was nothing official about it until that season. This means that officially, both Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain, two of the greatest shot blockers of all time, retired from the NBA without a single official blocked shot. 
And that's a real shame. No offense to Akeem Olajuwon, the official all-time NBA leader in career block shots, but if block shots had been an official statistic since the beginning of the league, there is no doubt that Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain would be at the top of the list. They both turned the block shot into an art form. And what I loved about the way that Russell blocked shots was that rather than try to spike the ball into the third row the way the guys do today, he would softly bat the ball so that he could grab it and start the fast break for the Celtics. Kevin Garnett once asked Bill Russell if he was ever tempted to put the ball in the stands as a way of intimidating the opponent. And Bill Russell laughed with that famous cackle and said, quote, No, they can have the ball back after we score. Unquote. Russell was always thinking about scoring and winning the game before anything else. And even since I was a kid, I would also wonder why players would block the shot into the stands. While it is an intimidating move, all they were doing is giving the ball right back to the other team and giving them another chance to score. And if the other team scores after the inbound, then the block shot didn't mean anything. I am totally with Bill Russell on this. When a player blocks a shot, the goal is to end the other team's possession and take off on a fast break for their own team. But regardless of how you look at it, the block shot has become an incredible weapon. When you can get into the head of a shooter and make him hesitate to shoot, you have won a significant battle. As far as the NBA is concerned, here is the official list of the top 5 all-time leaders in block shots. Number 1. Akeem Olajuwon Number 2. Dikembe Mutombo Number 3. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Number 4. Mark Eaton And Number 5. Tim Duncan and the next time you watch a game with a superior shot blocker like Jaron Jackson Jr. or Rudy Gobert, watch how often a player passes up a shot because Jackson or Gobert is in the vicinity. I believe that the most effective blocked shot is the shot that isn't even taken. Seriously, watch how often a player passes up a shot because they are afraid of getting it blocked. That's the true power of the blocked shot. Unfortunately, there is no official statistic for making a player pass up a shot. So, there you have it. A bit of the history of the block shot and how it developed over the last 100 plus years. And for your convenience, I'm going to put a bunch of links in the show description of some of these highlights of block shots that I've been talking about. So go ahead and check those out in the show description. Join us next time when we share the story of the first time that Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were teammates. And it wasn't on the Dream Team. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. And don't forget to check out sportshistorynetwork.com for more information on my podcast and the rest of the podcasts on our network. Take care and see you soon.
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.